Hello, and welcome to another episode of Lost to Time. And this one is a bit of a special edition episode. You're joined by myself, Joshua Mallard, and co-host Han Hitchin. Welcome back, Han. Hello, thanks for having me, as always. Yeah, we're back in Pennsylvania. After the holidays, we were traveling a bit, but, you know, we're all back in Pennsylvania. It's 2022, and it's been long enough for us to get used to the fact that it's 2022. Now, I mentioned this is a special edition episode. We'll get into that in just a bit. But before that, let me tell you a bit about the camp activities that you might have missed out on. First off, there was Project Goot, which was a virtual concert that happened on January 17th this year. You can still stream that live by going to contemporaryartmusicproject.org and looking at our events tab. That will let you access links to all the concerts that have live streams. And it'll also tell you about the next big thing that is just around the corner, and that's Campground 22. That's the big festival we've been hyping up for every episode, and it'll be happening from March 24th to 26th in the Tampa and St. Petersburg area. So if you're around, I definitely, definitely recommend that you come check this out. It's amazing to see this come to the area, don't you think, Han? Absolutely, yeah. It's going to be a real good time. Yeah, good time indeed. You'll see us both there. Uh, now, the other thing we have is the GoFundMe page. Han, how about you tell us a bit about that? Sure, absolutely. So if you go to contemporaryartmusicproject.com and you go to their, well, actually just at the top of their website, there's a little yellow button that says donate. If you click on that and you donate to the Contemporary Art Music Project, that'll be a huge help because that helps events like Campground and their concerts keep happening. And if you do donate, there is a donors page on their website and different tiers of donors on there. There are supporters, believers, advocates, philanthropists, and sponsors, depending on how much you donate. And you can be one of those things today if you would like to help financially support the Contemporary Art Music Project. So definitely consider doing that today. Yes. I just want to say, you know, a lot of art exists on an ecosystem, a community of support. We've loved everyone tuning into this, and we'd love to keep everything still going. So please donate if you can or spread the word. Now, as we said, this is a special edition episode. We are actually interviewing a familiar face around camp, and that would be the composer, Andrew Sigler. Now, you might know Andrew from the In Tempore concert where Unmi Ko and Catherine Weintraub performed Through All Panics. Again, you can go to the Contemporary Art Music Project website and stream that whole concert. Anyways, Andrew's been doing a lot of activity, commissioned very widely, and on a lot of different festivals. So without further ado, I'd like to just welcome our guests. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Of course. We're super excited to have you on. Now, we'll get right into the music. The first piece we're here to discuss is Through All Panics. Now, this particular recording is with Unmi Ko and Catherine Weintraub off the In Tempore concert. So check that out. Uh, this is an awesome piece. It's super rhythmically involved. There's lots of time signature changes. How much was it, Han? Um, if my memory is correct, around like 200. But Andy, is that <laughs> correct? You wrote it, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, that is correct. It is, I think, 300 some bars and there are something like 200 time signature changes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I wrote this piece. Um, for Allison Adams, who is the uh, sax professor, uh, classical sax professor here at the University of Tennessee, where I teach in Knoxville. And Allison is just a, such an amazing player that when she approached me to write something, I, I knew I could probably write just about anything and she could pull it off. And this piece is among a number that I wrote um, when I used to work in a DAW with samples. So I would actually kind of sketch the whole piece out. Um, I used a, a doll called Sonar, which is no longer around, but at any rate, I would come up with you know the form and all the notes and pitches and, and the rhythms and so forth, kind of figure out how the whole thing went. And uh, then I would go into uh, Sibelius and I would literally have you know two separate computers. <laughs> and instead of say, um, downloading a MIDI file and dumping it in Sibelius and cleaning it up, 
Um, you could imagine a piece that's, you know, <laughs> has that many times signature changes, but just the cleanup would be a nightmare. So I actually would go in and enter each note uh, into the program separately. So look over at the um, the DAW, C sharp, go over to the alias, click C sharp, <laughs> and oh go through it for yeah for everything. Um, and I did that for years. It's uh, some of the pieces that we're going to talk about today were um, came to life in that way. Uh, I don't do it quite that way anymore, but I did for a long time. I was going to say, I can imagine that's a lot of work, but I mean, the product, the pieces that come out of it are really, really awesome. So <laughs> I guess well, thank it's worth you. it. I appreciate that. Well, I mean, like we kicked this off by, you know, indicating <laughs> it's, you know, 300 some bars and 200 time signature changes. And that's something I would never do in a million years if I was looking at <laughs> sheet music in the beginning. I'd be embarrassed, like, why you don't need that? That's ridiculous. You know, certainly you can find some way to do this without uh, you know, uh, having a you know, trigonometry calculator or whatever to, to count it all up. I mean, I feel like the music flows in the way that I like. And the fact is that working in the DAW, uh, I mean, yes, it's got a time signature, um, you know, set up and so forth, but I'm largely working at a piano roll. So it really, at least to, to my mind, basically just looks like a continuous grid. So I'm not really thinking about those divisions. Now, before I would take it and put it into Sibelius, I would um, I would go through and figure out what I thought where I thought the strong beats were and where the down beats and try to come up with a time signature scheme um, in the DAW process. But I wouldn't really do much of that until I'd finished writing the piece, and then I'd go through and say, oh, "Okay, this is what it is." And then sometimes, then dumping it into the DAW, pardon me, into the notation uh, program, there would be further changes. You know, something as simple as I might have put three four and it actually six eight or or whatever. Um, Allison premiered this at the World Saxophone Congress um, in Zagreb in the summer of 18. Um, I was going to go, but then I wasn't able to. So she said, well, I really want to, uh, you know, at least get some feedback before, <laughs> before you go. So I went to her office and she had it set up with, um, she was playing along with, with a, uh, it was the piano, like the MIDI piano. So it's, you know, completely unforgiving, obviously, and motoric and so forth. By the time she finished, I was kind of shaking. It was, she was so good. <laughs> I mean, it was, didn't miss a, a thing. And it's a very breakneck piece. And uh, I've been really excited, uh, you know, with uh, subsequent performances um, and, and that it's, it's been played by, uh, by so many other people is, is really, uh, really thrilling. Yeah, that's really awesome. And it's just so cool to see this piece that you write for a performer at such a high level. You feel like you can write anything and you do write this really not easy piece that is really a bear to perform, it seems like. And getting so many different performances, seeing other people's interpretations of it is just always so rewarding. And that's so awesome. Well, really lucky to have been approached by some amazing players, uh, both in the commissioning of the piece and then subsequent performances. So I love that, you know, being able to work with with Doug and Catherine and with me and and hearing uh, you know their performances uh, is uh, you know it's a real joy. I'm very lucky to to be able to work with people like that. Oh, That's yeah, an amazing they're... group of people. <laughs> yeah, they're all awesome. <laughs> no kidding. I mean, especially from people who have you know performed for a few years, it, there's like such a another level to it that these performers are at. But um, I think. What you said is super inspirational. I've seen more and more composers starting with the DAW, and it's this new technology that we're embracing. Um, but of course, you're talking to some younger people, so um, maybe we're <laughs> maybe you're preaching to the choir. <laughs> well, I teach a course at UT called Virtual Audio Modeling that uh, really deals with, shall we say, more conventional chamber uh, and other concert music, uh, but to, to work with sample libraries to uh, make those models, if you will, in the DAW. Um, the idea that they're models in the way that an architectural model, uh, it, it, it functions in a similar way, which is to say, if I want someone to build a house for me, uh, you know, and they show me a little model on the desk, <laughs> I know this is not the house. <laughs> it's a representation of what I hope the house will be. And so those virtual audio models uh, also serve as reasonably good representations of what I hope the piece will be. Um, and just like with building a house and actually working with real materials and um, and on a real site, um, of course, when the players get the music, um, there are further changes and revisions and, and all those sort of things that happen. But uh, using the DAW, 
I mean, it's all just technology. So if you're going to use, you know, there's technology that has 88 keys and pedals on the bottom. There's technology that has six strings and you strum it. <laughs> there's technology in a piece of paper and a pencil and a cabin somewhere. Um, all those technologies are going to shape how you write to some degree. Um, and hopefully, regardless of what the technology is that a composer's using, they're, uh, and assuming they're writing music that is going to be, uh, let's say, acoustically realized by humans, um, that they, they bear the fact in mind that, uh, again, people are going to play it. Um, so, you know, you, a dog can play, uh, you know, uh, and then we'll see a French horn for half an hour. <laughs> and hypothetically, a person could do it. You know, that's where a student will come in and say, but can't they do circular breathing? Like, not, not really, not like that, no. <laughs> so, uh, you, you know, you have to take it all with a grain of salt, no matter what the tech is. Oh, yes. And I can speak on behalf of French horn players. Please don't write one long sustain that is half an hour long. We will not like that. <laughs> I want to meet someone who could do that, <laughs> if there is one. If you're out there, you are not, you're like some kind of superhero. That is your superpower. Go join the Avengers. They'll, they want you. <laughs> Now, thank you for shedding some light on that piece. Um, for listeners tuning in, you're about to hear Through All Panics, performed by Catherine Weintraub and Unmi Ko. This is composed by our guest, Andrew Sigler, and I hope you all enjoy. Thank you. 
All right, there you have it. That was Through All Panics. We hope you all enjoyed that. Um, definitely take a listen to um, that piece on the Intempore live stream. Um, now, that being said, we're going to jump into the next piece after the Sheepdog Trials. What Han and I noticed about this one is it's still rhythmically involved, but it's a lot more flowing. Um, mm -hmm. And we particularly liked the orchestration of it all, like the moments where you pair pizzicato on the violin with staccato notes on the piano it's really not like the typical um sort of solo piece that has piano it's very much a duo where both instruments get the spotlight um can you tell us a bit about your process or how it differed from through all panics things like that sure this piece was actually written as a companion piece for another uh violin uh piano duet called uh, Finding the Air Up There. Uh, and Finding the Air Up There is kind of like the Royal Panics in that it is pretty frenetic throughout. So um, at least at the beginning of After the Sheepdog Trials, I was hoping to write something that was <laughs> a little less frenetic, although um, this piece definitely uh, has its moments. Um, so I wanted something that was a little more detached and sort of uh, maybe ethereal. Um, as far as the, the the orchestration and so forth, uh, and the way I was approaching the instruments, um, both in this piece and the other one I mentioned, uh, I definitely hear it as a, it, it's not a, a piece for violin with piano accompaniment. Um, you know, they both are, uh, I think, certainly equal partners um, in in, uh, in this piece. The, uh, you know, the, the piano explores a pretty wide range. Um, a lot of you know resonance and pedaling um with the uh the, the violin as you mentioned there's uh pizzicato there's a lot of, a lot of use of uh duplets and and uh and other tuplets and so forth throughout to really kind of offer some shifting uh rhythmic schemes um it's dynamically pretty diverse um you know it starts off very quietly um i was trying to think a bit about the different timbre with the open uh open strings versus fingered notes. So those are, those are some things that, that, that uh, I was thinking about, largely, again, having a foil for the other work um, and exploring some of those uh, timbres and qualities with this one. I really like that approach. It, um, it reminds me of like with electronic music where we talk about hyper instruments where you can augment an individual instrument to be like a augmented version of itself, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. It seems like you've really done that in this duet. Oh, I agree. Well, I appreciate that. Um, you know, again, this is a piece that was um, actually, <laughs> this was the last performance uh, and happened to be the world premiere of the piece was on March 9th of 2020. So right before everything oh. went south. Um, yeah, we had finished our contemporary music festival at, at uh, UT Knoxville the previous week. And this was premiered on a Monday at uh, um, UC Riverside uh, near Los Angeles by the Panic Duo. Um, and so I, I went to that concert, they performed it, and then, uh, you know, got on a plane <laughs> the next day. And uh, I remember uh, it was either the next day or the following where, you know, NBA shut down. And I think as I was watching that happen, I got the text from UT saying, you know, in-person classes were shut and all that. So, um, 
but it was it was a fantastic performance and fortunately it was just as i said just before everything went south so it was a pretty normal experience um but it's another example of two uh you know just amazing players uh in pasha and nick who uh just killed it <laughs> i mean it was just such a wonderful performance um and it was an interesting i think i mentioned this in the uh, uh the usf chat but Normally, when you go for a uh, performance and you're going to meet the players, you might have a, you know, go to a rehearsal the day before or the day of. And I'm often a little hesitant to make a lot of comments because I don't want to get in, in anyone's head. Um, but uh, we were supposed to do like a Zoom kind of thing uh, and uh, weren't able to schedule it. So they just sent me a rehearsal recording. And that was, I mean, it's not rocket science to, th to think to do that, <laughs> but the experience for me was kind of uh, revelatory because I could sit and really listen to everything with a grain of salt, understanding that this is one run through of the piece and there may be some things that are on that recording that they wouldn't have done, but I would, you know, could get really extensive notes as opposed to what always feels like, uh, um, uh, you know, a di more difficult process um, in person where they're playing through the piece and you're kind of thumbing through the score and trying to like make notes while you keep up with the score and you're still listening for what's happening next. <laughs> you know, you try to process, notate, <laughs> or, you know, mark, and then, you know, keep in the moment. Um, and I find that uh, that process is not nearly as successful as being able to sit uh, with a recording and, and, and go through those things. So I think the combination of their wonderful playing and also my being able to give more um, specific um, and detailed commentary um, really, you know, came together and, and uh, a real wonderful performance and world premiere of that piece. Oh, yeah, that's actually great insight. I mean, some people, I guess, think that composers can catch every single little mistake or every sort of stylistic difference in the performance of their pieces. But when you're at like a dress rehearsal and the clock's ticking, it's like actually really hard. So, um, mm -hmm. At a certain point, people perform things so well that, you know, it's just thumbs up. <laughs> that was sure. good. Oh, yeah. But it's also, you know, for a lot of composers, it can be hard to know how to give uh, notes and criticism. Um, you know, we often come from a place where we're just happy that someone's playing it. And I'm just so grateful. And that's true. And it's wonderful. Um, but, you know, the players are also grateful that they get to play the music, you know, and we're all hopefully, you know, part of a team on this thing. Uh, and so composers uh, should be able to give thoughtful, constructive criticism um, so that the players can make the piece shine as much as possible. And that may be another benefit of, <laughs> of hearing a recording uh, of a rehearsal is that, uh, you know, you can you can find a way to sort of dispassionately comment on performance techniques and things that you'd like to push and pull and change or whatever. Um, without having to negotiate the in real time, <laughs> uh, you know, sort of maybe politics or concerns about hurt feelings or whatever that, uh, that are happening uh, just because you're in the same place and also because of the timing. You know, as you mentioned, it's just, you know, an hour before the show or the day before the show or whatever. Uh, if you can get a recording a week before the show, it's plenty of time for them to take those comments into account and then to, uh, you know, implement uh, things as best they can. Now, thank you for that insight, Andrew. Um, we hope you all enjoy this. This is After the Sheepdog Trials, performed by Nick Gerpe and Pasha Zeitlin, um, and composed by Andrew Sigler.
All right, y'all. So that was after the sheepdog trials. And in a little bit, we'll go to its companion piece, Fighting There Up There. But first, we're going to talk about a piece for Perot Ensemble, Sparrows, Jump Nine, Sandpipers. And specifically, we're going to be focusing in here on the first movement, because that's the recording that we would like to play today. Now, Sparrows, we notice, is just as rhythmically involved as Through All Panics, like a lot of Andrew's music. But I feel like the style is overall a bit different. So there's a lot more light and almost playful um, motives, gestures, and maybe uses of orchestration. And with the movement being titled as Quicksilver, it's, I wonder, Andy, if there's this connection to actual Quicksilver because um, the actual material Quicksilver is very hard to contain. It changes a lot. And I feel like listening to this piece, it, almost maybe has a similar connection to that. So is there any way you could uh, connect the dots here for us a little bit? Sure. There are a few things about uh, sparrows that, that come to mind. Uh, one is that initially uh, the first movement that we're going to listen to was the entire piece. Um, this is the only time I think I ever wrote a piece in hopes of winning a particular calls for scores. <laughs> wow. um, so um it was, oh, and the name of the, the group escapes me, but I'll, hopefully it'll come up as we're talking. Um, but it was a, a, a fantastic uh, um, outfit in, um, in Seattle. And they had a call for scores and they were doing a concert series. This is, I don't know, 13 years ago or something like that. Um, a concert series uh, based on uh, uh, the elements. And so they had one that was air. And they were looking for pieces that had to do somehow with air or flight or something in that world. Uh, and so I was working on a piece, and that's why it has its the character is is what it is. It's um, you know kind of frenetic, but, but kind of bright and light. I think um, mm -hmm. throughout a lot of it, the title um, now musically it has nothing to do with the following piece, but uh, the title actually came from. Uh, there's a John Mackey piece called uh, Kingfisher's Catch Fire, which I love that title. I mean, it just comes out of the mouth really, really interestingly. I love the way the, all the, come, the K's come through and so forth. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so the title Sparrows Jump Nine Sandpipers is really just kind of a poor man's Kingfisher's Catch Fire. <laughs> but I did want to name a title that had, uh, you know, some, uh, uh, you know, it was kind of interesting and not just, you know, birds take flight or I don't know, something along those lines. Um, the Quicksilver titling of the first movement doesn't speak um, necessarily to what uh, to actual Quicksilver, but it's really interesting that you can kind of maybe hear something in that world because it really speaks to how our our minds uh, take in art and how how much I mean really art just happens inside a listener's head. <laughs> Other oh, than yeah. that, it's just it's just a bunch of you know sounds ha happening through time. I mean, this is, you know, speaks to, you know, Oliveris and the cage and the concept of just listening to sounds around you. I mean, there's music everywhere. Uh, it's how we frame it and we kind of impose order on it that where it makes sense. But um, the, the motive that you'll hear throughout this piece, Sean Osborne was the clarinetist on this piece. And when we went, uh, they played it, I think, four or five times. And I went to Seattle for these performances. And they were all uh, kind of in close proximity to... Uh, the audience. And this is the kind of thing where they play a piece, then talk to the audience, uh, which is pretty common now. I think it was a little bit less common then. And uh, he held up his iPhone and he had found a recording of sandpipers. And apparently sandpipers make this sort of quick single pitch staccato sound, <laughs> which is just like the opening of the piece. Uh, and so Sean was telling the audience, it's, I think this is where this came from. Um, but that was not the case at all. <laughs> I, huh? I, 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 I'm sure I've seen sandpipers at some time in my life, but I was not thinking about that sound in particular. I really wanted uh, a motive that um, had its a half step, if memory serves, between where that motive starts and it kind of dips down and it comes back up. Um, so I'd be able to play around with that. But he heard that or, you know, did some searching on the sound of sandpipers and you find those connections and you make it into your own thing, which is awesome, you know. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, you think about, say, late Beatles lyrics, you know, uh, Sunday's on the phone to Monday, Monday's on the phone to me. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't know what that means, but <laughs> it's got syntax. It's got direction. You know, it's got some style. 
And in my head, it, it conjures up something. I don't think it's going to conjure up the same thing in everybody's heads. But the reality is that even like very literal, uh, say, lyrics conjure up slightly different things in everybody's heads. And then when you talk about abstracted uh, abstractions that we have in, in concert music or in instrumental music, let's say, lyricless music, uh, that really gets amped up. <laughs> so then you put a little suggestion in there of, you know, sparrows, jump nine, sandpipers. Um, there's a sub, uh, a little kind of subtitle uh, in the frontispiece, which says, let me think. Um, I'll have to go look it up. I can't remember it off the top of my head. <laughs> but, um, oh, you're all good. It, it was this, well, it was this um, sort of little, uh, as though it was from a, a book or a poem, this little line that I made up that indicated that, uh, um, the, you know, the, the sparrows took the unfamiliar beach and made it their own, uh, you know, like <laughs> the sharks and the jets or something. Um, and I imagine that when the listener, you know, is looking through program notes and you get a couple of these suggestions, it's just a fantastical starting off point for people to hear things in the music. Uh, people don't always need prompting like that, but uh, that's kind of what was going on um, in my head when I was uh, both writing the piece and thinking about the character and the nature of it. That's really awesome. And I think it's really interesting how, um, you know, Josh and I had our interpretation, but also that the clarinetists had um, their own interpretation and both of which ne weren't necessarily what you had in mind when composing the piece. But of course, everyone who listens to music, you know, they might have a different interpretation. Um, and I agree with you. I think that's something that's really awesome about not just music, but just art in general. Sure. Well, and it's when we start talking about intention and what the composer mean and all that sort of thing. Uh, it's, I mean, it's music is like the biggest game of telephone there ever was. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. you're never gonna have any idea what was you know necessarily going on in the beginning of it. Um, and I don't know that it really matters. You know, um, the, what's important again is what happens. You know, when that music goes into somebody's head and does its thing. Um, mm -hmm. The quote was like a street fight of the air. Uh, the sparrows took the unfamiliar beach and made it their own. That's what that line was. Um, so that would be in, often in the program notes. Um, and the group from Seattle was Simple Measures. Uh, it was a new music uh, curatorial organization. So uh, the, that was where that was premiered. And uh, yeah, that's that's how Sparrows started. Once, once those uh, performances occurred, uh, I went back and wrote two more movements. So it's a multi-movement work. That's really cool. And just a quick, like, but just a cool question. The recording you sent us is that that's by a different group, right? Oh, yes. Now, this thank okay. you. The performance that we're going to hear was at the Oregon Bach Festival in the summer of 2013. So, uh, yes, the Oregon Bach Festival, brought, you know, has a, a variety of players. That was not an established ensemble. Mm -hmm. um, it was made up of some professionals um, from uh, from New York. Pauline Kim was a violinist. Uh, um, Adam Marks. A uh, wonderful pianist who who passed recently, unfortunately. Um, mm -hmm. Just a wonderful, caring guy and a, a beautiful player. Um, and uh, the the other performers were uh, festival participants, uh, so they had mm -hmm. both performance and composition fellows uh, who were uh, playing. Um, but everyone played so wonderfully. Wonderfully, it was a uh, was a really great experience. Oh, most certainly. And to our listeners, you are about to hear this performance, and it is as we can all attest it is a wonderful performance of Sparrows Jump Nine Sandpipers, the first movement, Quicksilver. And this performance, all the performers are Cassie Lear on flute, Benjamin Irwin on the clarinet, Pauline Kim on the violin, Wan Ting Huang on the cello, Adam Marks on piano, and conducting is James Kalambach.
There you have it. That was Sparrows Jump Nine Sandpipers, the first movement, Quicksilver, by Andrew Sigler. In light of our earlier conversation, let us know what you thought, what you imagined in your head, and how you interpreted that piece. Now we're looking at Finding the Air Up There, which we mentioned earlier is a companion piece to After the Sheepdog Trials. Now this is another violin and piano one performed by Kelly Leon Pierce and Mark Shapiro. What can you tell us about this piece, Andrew? Finding the air up there is something I wrote when I was working on my dissertation and I didn't want to work on my dissertation. So I, <laughs> I put that aside uh, and started writing something else. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> uh, and the basic concept uh, that I had in mind was the idea of, uh, well, broadcast TV uh, used to go off the air and it would go to static. You'd hear the national anthem, then it'd go to static. And then, um, you know, at five or six the next morning, they would you'd turn it back on. Um, stations would broadcast again. And so I would get up, especially Saturday mornings when cartoons were on, uh, I would get up uh, real early <laughs> and often before the cartoons even came on turn on the TV and there was a static there. And I wasn't necessarily sitting for long periods of time staring at a static television, but it did kind of fascinate me, the, the idea of all that motion within the static after a while doesn't seem like motion at all. Um, and that's kind of what I think of uh, what I was thinking of with this piece. I mean, it's clearly, uh, you know, very rapid um, 16th notes for the bulk of the piece. Um, but at times it, it feels almost like you're just sort of floating. Um, so that's, that's kind of where this piece comes from. That's super interesting. And, you know, I think it speaks a lot to how these pieces inhabit a time and a place <laughs> in the life of a composer, mm -hmm. um, you know, tying into your dissertation and all that. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I, you know, I, again, I was any kind of big project like that, uh, you know, you need diversions, whether it's another piece or, you know, a hobby or something <laughs> to uh, just to give you some space from it. Um, so I got really lucky that, that uh, you know, this diversion uh, <laughs> came up and it resulted in, in a piece that I'm really happy with. Um, happy that it worked out the way it did. Well, listeners, I think you'll be happy with how it sounds. This is Finding the Air Up There, performed by Kelly Leon Pierce and Mark Shapiro and composed by Andrew Sigler.
folks so that was finding the year up there the performance by kelly leon pierce and mark shapiro and the final piece we are going to talk about by andy is the citizens band now this is for brass quintet and was premiered by the university of tennessee faculty brass quintet and it's a really wonderful performance it's a short piece it's only about two minutes but it is really interesting and um yeah i really enjoyed listening to it Andy, would you like to talk about this piece a little bit and maybe some inspiration for it? Sure. I can kind of give you the, the sort of the program note. Um, sure. I grew up in Southwest Louisiana. And when we were kids, my grandparents would drive down from Connecticut uh, in a van customized by my grandfather. Uh, mm -hmm. Consumer com uh, communications technology at the time was limited primarily to home uh, phone landlines. But there were those like my grandfather who chose to augment their cross country travel with the original mobile phone. Uh, the CB radio, uh, mm -hmm. which is where Citizens Band gets its name. So in Citizens Band, uh, each player vies for attention uh, and their overlapping interjections lead to a kind of collective silences. Uh, these breaks between gestures recall the break called for by CB operators, hoping to signal availability of the channel. And the eventual 2D uh, speaks to the communications shared in those original chat rooms, the open American road. Uh, this was written uh, for Alex Van Duren and the University of Tennessee Brass Quintet. Gotcha. Yeah. So that's really interesting. And I think it's cool that you take this concept of um, not necessarily like changing technology, but you are taking technology that your grandfather used and kind of, um, I would I don't want to say reinvented because it seems like, as you mentioned, this is something that quite a few people would do with their, um, their radios. But I think it's really interesting that you took that concept and applied it to this brass quintet. And I could definitely hear um, the different instruments, you know, trying to get the attention and then, you know, what you described, I can hear it in the piece. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. One other interesting thing about this one was when I went in for uh, not the first rehearsal, but the first rehearsal I attended, um, Alex Lappins, who's the tuba player, after they maybe made a run of it, um, which sounded great, asked uh, what I've never I've been asked since and probably will never be asked for again, but asked if they could play it faster. And I, uh, I said, sure, um, why? And he said, well, and I don't remember what the tempo was, but he said, well, right now the tempo, and there's a lots of 16ths, the tempo is kind of right um, between where we're comfortable double-tonguing and triple-tonguing. And if we can move up, you know, whatever it was, 10 beats a minute or something like that, we'll all be comfortably in triple tonguing and it'll flow better. I said, well, sure, go for it. And so they started playing it at that slightly modified tempo. And I mean, it was it was uh, kind of a revelation. <laughs> it's the kind of thing that, um, you know, like we take orchestration, you write for years and you, you know how the instruments work and ranges and idiomatic things and so forth. But something like that just never would have occurred to me. Um, so that was, uh, again, the fact that anyone asked to play any of my music faster was was uh, exciting enough. But <laughs> but uh, that I got that tidbit from that uh, experience was also uh, really interesting. Yeah, that's really awesome. I think the best thing when you're rehearsing with a performer um, is just it's just so surprising because sometimes you'll write something, you'll think it's difficult and you'll be like, oh, I hope I'm not making it too fast for them, too difficult. And then the performer turns around and say, actually, it would be better for me to play this faster. Can I play it faster? And you're just like, yes, <laughs> <laughs> I love that moment. I'm so yeah. happy you got that. <laughs> so, yeah, so we're now going to listen to the final piece of Andrews today, Citizens Band. And this performance is by the University of Tennessee Faculty Brass Quintet. 
with Kathy Leach and Elise Armstrong on trumpets, Katie Johnson on horn, Alex Van Duren on trombone, and Alexander Lapins on tuba. There you go, listeners. That was Citizens Band, and that is the last piece by Andrew Sigler to tie up this episode. Thank you so much for joining us, Andrew. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Now, I definitely recommend anyone out there go and check out some more of Andrew's music. Um, You can find more information on andrewsigler.com, and there's a lot on there that's really amazing to listen to. Uh, Before you go, I'd like to remind you all about some camp activities. We recently had the Project Goot virtual concert that was on January 17th. You can find that right on the camp website and stream it. We also have the big news coming up, the Campground 22, our big festival that we've been hyping up (laughs) basically every episode. And that's from March 24th to 26th in the Tampa and St. Petersburg area. Find some more info on that on the website. Now, Han, can you remind us about the GoFundMe campaign? Absolutely. So if you go to the contemporaryartmusicproject.org, you will find a yellow donate button at the top of the site, and that will take you to a GoFundMe page. It's so important that you donate to camp because that will help keep projects like Campground, Project Goot, and other concerts to keep happening in the future. And it would be really great for camp to keep going. So please consider donating today. Yes, that's all for today, and we'll see you in the next episode.